Welcome to the Reason Roundtable, your weekly libertarian podcast from the magazine Free Minds and Free Markets. I am a post-vacational Matt Welch, joined by Nick Gillespie, Peter Suderman, and Catherine Mangu. Ward, happy 3rd of July, patriots. Howdy. Hey, Matt, uh, I'm changing my name to Gabs for this show. <laughs> happy Nick is changing his name to Gabs Day. No, happy, happy Independence Day. That's right. Damn it. Um, our independence from what? Isn't our government more oppressive than the, the crown that we separated from a thousand Shouldn't years ago? Shouldn't you know the answer to that question, given that you wrote a yeah. book Uh-oh. titled, what was it titled? Why? The Declaration uh, of Independence. But that was with a TS. I thought you were just calling Nick old, honestly. I mean. Yeah. Uh, either way. Gabs. It's a Please, it's Gabs. <laughs> uh, Mr. Gabs. All right. Enough of that gabbing. Last week, the Supreme Court closed out its 22-23 term. I'm just going to insert a parenthetical here. <laughs> it's really hard when you like uh, like school years, you know, because school years are, are like yeah. are double years. They're like NBA season. Yeah. In the 20s. Because it's like yeah. the NBA season would be, oh, it's the 2022 to 2023 season. That's just, that's a mouthful. I don't really know how to do that. So we're just going to go 22, 23 term uh, with a bang, bang, nixing affirmative action in college admissions, ruling that a website designer can choose to turn down a customer seeking to celebrate a gay marriage, at least in theory, and striking down the executive order by President Joseph Robinette Biden II to magically erase $400 billion worth of student loan debt. Each of these came via six to three vote aligned perfectly with the block of justices nominated by each of America's two major political parties. I'm not going to name them. You're just going to have to guess them. As you can expect in a polarized country full of emoting politicians and clickbait commentators, Gab Gillespie, the rulings were greeted with reactions that appeared to emanate from different planets. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez warned Sunday that the high court is, quote, creeping dangerously toward authoritarianism. Meanwhile, Peter's favorite Florida governor and second-ranked GOP presidential contestant, Ron DeSantis, criticized the three justices that were appointed by his rival Donald Trump, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, for those scoring at home, saying that they paled in comparison to Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas over at the Vola Conspiracy, which all of you should read, the always recommended group legal blog hosted by Reason.com. You can read more nuanced analyses, such as the fact that only 12 of this term's 57 cases were decided by a 6-3 to three vote, and only five of those, including the ones I just mentioned, uh, were on neatly partisan lines. Josh Blackman over at Volokh contends that, quote... There will be umpteen efforts to explain this term, but ultimately a single factor predominates. Drumroll, please. Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh consistently vote with the court's progressives to form a five-member block. Hmm. Who knew? Uh, Catherine, let's start with the affirmative action case. Students for fair admissions versus president or V president and fellows of Harvard College. Some people don't realize that the Reason Foundation which is the 501c3 nonprofit that makes all of our work possible here, also has a thriving amicus brief filing sideline headed up by American hero Manny Klausner, Manuel S., uh, and in fact, uh, filed a one in favor of the ultimately victorious plaintiffs in this case. Can you explain, Catherine, 
especially to those who are bemoaning uh, this case in particular, why are so many libertarians cheering what looks like the end of affirmative action in higher education? I mean, maybe it's because we just don't like racism, man. Like, wow. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, I think that this is, you know, this is um, a very, very long time coming. And I think one thing, one of the kind of two different planets elements of the commentary here has been um, the people who were like, we barely gave affirmative action a chance. And then the other people that were like, we've been doing this for decades and it's not working. We have to stop. Um, and I think that's uh, j just one of the many divides here. I have to say that uh, I have kind of a, a cynical feeling about this case, even though it clearly is a win. It clearly um, this this is this is clearly what the law demands. But universities have shown time and time again that when they are told that what they are doing to obtain the mix of students that they want is illegal, they just find another way to still obtain more or less that mix of students. And we saw this when. Um, there were controversies over, say, caps on the number of Jews at elite schools. Um, I think we will see it again here. Obviously, some folks will be up. Some folks will be down. Um, we were talking in the offices as these decisions were dropping, uh, and the, the group was really divided between the cynical take that I am articulating here and a win is a win. So listeners can choose which way they want to go on this one. Which way did Reason Rat uh, vote? Reason Rat only listens. Reason Rat doesn't speak. <laughs> uh, Nick, I is it worth uh, drawing a distinction between the University of North Carolina and Harvard in this case? Because tell us, you know, if well, I'm I am asking because the libertarian dogma would be that Harvard, as a private university, should have a right to discriminate, and that the real crime here is just that they weren't admitting that they were capping the number of Asians. Uh, who were qualified to enter because they didn't want that many Asians in their class, but that UNC as a public university should not be allowed to operate in that way because the government should not be allowed to discriminate. I think that I think it's a legitimate distinction, honestly. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we do go out of our way uh, with regard to speech cases to make this distinction. Um, you know, speech rights uh, of those at public universities are different than um at private universities and re the restrictions that are allowed on speech. So I think I think it is worth preserving that distinction, not only in this case, but also just more broadly, right? The argument would be, well, functionally, all universities are public because they are so heavily public publicly funded. But that way lies madness, right? Dumping a bunch of government dollars into an industry as a way of backdoor nationalizing it is something that we really do need to be vigilant about. Right. So it gets kind of complicated in all of those things. The other thing that I'll say about all of this stuff as somebody who not only is done with college, finally, uh, but also my kids are done with college. I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but like college stuff becomes less interesting or important. <laughs> Wow. As, as the draft, <laughs> as the draft or the drinking age, right? You're just pulling you up know, the ladder just, behind you, huh? All right. No, it's just like I've got, you know, I've got like, you know, uh, dementia to deal with. I, you know, I've, I've, I'm forward looking, not backward. Presidents, looking. yours. Um, really looking forward knows. to the Supreme Court's <laughs> forthcoming decision on long-term care funding. Then, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think I know which way they're going to be uh, voting because they all need it, right? Uh, but um, the other thing about there's not all actually of this a case about long term care funding. Thanks, yet. Peter. Thank you. 
Uh, there's, um, you know, there's also the question of who does this affect really? And like UNC is a good example because it's a big, major, top tier public research university. You know, a vast majority of college students, 75 percent or something, go to state state schools. Um, so actually, that ruling is probably more important than private ones. But on top of all of that is uh, the question of how many minorities are affected by any of this. And there was a, a, a Princeton sociologist in 2010 or 2012 said that it was in a given year, it was like about 1% of college applicants who were minorities were actually affected by these types of, you know, quota systems or affirmative action. And I'm kind of interested, no, no discussion has been about the difference between elite universities and non-elite universities, which is where the vast majority of, of students go. So in a way, I'm, I'm hopeful that these rulings, you know, it's causing a huge mushroom cloud in the commentariat right now, but that actually in a, in a couple of years, we'll recognize that this is not really changing the facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are that K through 12 education sucks and would be made better through school choice. And we actually start dealing with issues that are, you know, central to what ends up happening in college. A couple of uh, notes on that. There has been some uh, commentary, not no commentary on uh, on that, just uh, if nothing else from Jane Coaston of The New York Times, uh, who tweeted out after the ruling that most colleges and universities don't even use affirmative action because most schools accept pretty much everyone who applies. Selective universities are a small slice of what college is in America, uh, which is pretty interesting. It kind of makes this into an intra-elite competition uh, kind of uh, thing more than something that's broad. There, there's a broader uh, case about K through 12 that happened, I think, more than 10 years ago in the in late aughts. Um, that struck down um, K through 12 usage of of using race as a criteria in admissions. And so that has been supplanted to Catherine's cynicism point um, with uh, a usually looking for some kind of controlled choice system in which people look at uh, the people's economic status as a stand in for uh, racial status with the desire to create uh, different racial balances uh, in the schools, but not um, an explicit charge to do that because that would be illegal according to the Supreme Court. Uh, much more uh, impact on human beings than this one uh, did. Uh, Peter, Nick and I both have talked over the years about a 2009 book from Barry Friedman called The Will of the People, um, which to overly summarize the argument is that the Supreme Court basically uh, tends to ratify where public opinion has already gone. I've been struck reading about this stuff, um, how strongly affirmative action is unpopular across every single demographic. But also, uh, Nick and I are old enough, and maybe you, the two of you other ones are not, um, where affirmative action used to be on the, like, the front burner of politics uh, a lot, and it just kind of hasn't uh, been. So I would ask you to reflect on that. Are we seeing a ratification of where public opinion has gone at the same time that we're seeing uh, like uh, like it has stopped being the, the, a main topic of uh, headline politics? I think one way to understand how unpopular affirmative action is, is that, you know, there's already at least one very large, very important state with a, a big, successful, popular public university system that has banned affirmative action. And that state is California. California has banned affirmative action. It wasn't popular in California. 
And so that kind of tells you that even in one of the most liberal states in the country, one of the most progressive states in the country, um, affirmative action, uh, racial preferences for entry into into higher education just is is phenomenally unpopular. When you pull this, you cannot get a result that says, well, maybe actually people do like it even, even if you change the words, that sort of thing. Like as long as you actually describe what is being done for real um, in some reasonably accurate way, people dislike it. And so I don't think it's entirely incorrect to view the Supreme Court as a ratifier of uh, of public opinion. But in this case, I also don't think that's just what they were doing. The Supreme Court is not just there to do that. Uh, but that, I think, does probably weigh, I want to say invisibly, but it's like, it's not invisible. It's like the predator, right? So the predator has a, a cloaking mechanism and you can, in fact, see it running through the trees, except that, it, right? So, but it's also kind of invisible, especially if it doesn't move at all. Right. So it's sort is of it, like that. Is it like a penumbra? I've never oh, fully understood nice. what that word means, but I think it might mean that. An aura of invisibility, but not actual technical invisibility, because you can kind of see and sense it, even if it's not there explicitly. So I don't think it's right to say that uh, the Supreme Court was just ratifying public opinion. And this is just this is basically a, a stand in for a, a mass public vote on the issue. On the other hand, I do think it's pretty clear that John Roberts in particular cares about Supreme Court legitimacy as a as a big like it's a, a big way about how he thinks about the institution and what it is there to do. And going ag against a strongly held public opinion is something that he does, I think, not never, but lightly with, and with great caution. And that made it easier for John Roberts and the rest of the, the conservatives on the court that made it easier for them to say, nope, we're not going to do it. I also just want to throw in here. Um, Catherine said she thinks that colleges are going to try and get around this. I think that's totally right. But I also think that they are going to have a harder time getting around it than you might expect because part of Roberts's ruling was just to say, look, we know you're going to try to get around this. We can tell. You cannot do that. And it was an invitation to interested parties to sue any institution that appears to be doing that. And so, so I think there are going to be interested parties. And I think that this is actually going to stay in the, in, the, um, in the limelight here and in the public consciousness just because I think that over the next decade, we are probably going to see this come back to the court uh, at least once and maybe a couple times more as colleges look to alternative methods to try and replicate the, uh, the, 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 the pre-VISTA decision status quo. Uh, Catherine, uh, Clarence Thomas uh, made the unusual for him step of reading out his concurrence on this and said some pretty interesting things. He was getting pretty testy uh, with uh, going back and forth with the new appointee, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, but here's some of the things he said. Uh, Individuals are the sum of their unique experiences, challenges, and accomplishments. Their race is not to blame for everything good or bad that happens in their lives. A contrary myopic worldview based on individuals' skin color to the total exclusion of their personal choices is nothing short of racial determinism. And he goes on to say, um, though Justice Jackson seems to think that her race-based theory can somehow benefit everyone, it is an immutable fact that every time the government uses racial criteria to bring the races together, someone gets excluded and the person excluded suffers an injury solely because of his or her race, end quote. Does your, I know you're cynical, Catherine, but does your individualist heart pound a little harder uh, hearing those words? And does it sound a little bit like 
uh, we're hearing some actual kind of talk of, of race abolitionism here from uh, Clarence Thomas. Even spending a little bit too much time with Camille is what I'm hearing. Camille Foster, that would be, not Camille Claudel. Camille Foster. Yeah. Um, Camille Paglia, maybe. Camille Claudel. Any, any Camille is too many Camilles. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I that's it was stirring. I'm not going to lie. Like some of that stuff, I was like very much in the, um, you know, I had a little like go off girl kind of moment about it. But I remain cynical. I will say I was thinking back to what what I think might be like baby's first political controversy, which was <laughs> my freshman year of college. Like I was, you know, I arrived at college as an objectivist. I was just like a philosopher. You know what where, I mean? Where did I you a, go to college, Catherine? I went to Yale University. Oh. I don't know if you've heard of it. Nope. Good rowing team. Yes. And uh, I arrived at college. I was a philosopher, you know, so I was above all a this politics. philosopher. Probably. And I... You know, affirmative action. It was 1998, so this was kind of like the, I don't know. It was the it was the end of history. It was, it was a the, long time and ago. It was a long time ago, and um, there was a, a kind of demonstration day in favor of affirmative action on campus, and it was a, it was called a whiteout, and so all the students of color painted their faces white to show what Yale would look like without affirmative action. Like, just live in that moment for a minute. Wow. But the, yeah. the it would look like Bob Dylan the during the uh, Rolling Thunder review. Zealous right. participants in this day were the Asian students, and so there was this like wild thing where it was like, "Do y'all not know? Like, do you?" <laughs> You know, I, you're smart. I'm pretty sure you're smart, both because you're here and maybe racial stereotypes. But like, you're they were they were fully participating, fully in favor of affirmative action. And it was it was sort of so doubly wrong, right? Like, clearly, that is not what the campus would have looked like without affirmative action. It is not what the Yale campus will look like five years from now when the affirmative action has kind of worked its way out of the system, uh, you know, at the order of the Supreme Court. And there was just, you know, then as now, there's this kind of like weird pretending that the logical consequences of the policies won't exist, and they are, as Thomas said, that there will be a group that's discriminated against. And in this case, it was made explicit, and it was Asian students. Uh, Nick, we talked previously on this yeah. uh, podcast. Uh, podcast. It's been a while. I just got to work back up, get the muscles going. Uh, podcast about the um, multi-month uh, kind of journalistic uh, uh, examination slash critique of the uh, supposed and seeming uh, conflicts at the court or conflicts of interest, not necessarily against the rules of the court, but against the feeling of uh, transparency and other things, uh, focusing specifically uh, a lot of it on Clarence Thomas, his relationships with Harlan Crow, uh, a mega donor uh, and consumer <laughs> with his mega yachts and, and statue collector. And statue collector. Right. Um, uh, some and, and I think even uh, uh, us uh, saw this as a campaign of kind of uh, preemptive delegitimization. I said all those words correctly um, of uh, of the court and the conservative majority and what it might do next. Um, having seen and absorbed the reaction to these cases and specifically the affirmative action case and specifically Clarence Thomas's. Um, uh, role in it, how would you assess um, that kind of campaign or the way that people are, uh, who are d dissatisfied with these rulings and this one in particular have uh, have treated uh, Clarence Thomas and the conservative majority? 
So are you asking, is the court uh, seemingly delegitimated by elite press? A bit. And do you do you see like a reflection of that campaign kind of refracted in the in the response to this uh, this particular case? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what what's happened, the Supreme Court out of the federal government, the major branches had and has the highest standing. But, you know, and this really goes back to at least Obamacare, if not you know, uh, earlier, uh, but, you know, the same forces that are delegitimating and draining t- trust and confidence out of the, the executive branch and the legislative branch are coming for the court because the court matters. Um, and, you know, you really see it. Uh, I don't want to step on toes of stuff that you have lined up in other segments, Matt, but, you know, when Joe Biden spent a good chunk of the weekend or whoever was strapped to him for the weekend at Bernie's, you know, during a, a long weekend with Joe Biden was tweeting out, you know, like, like the Supreme Court is bullshit. Um, and it's, you know, and it keeps sliding like it, it among politicians as well as uh, commentators. It, it keeps sliding from these rulings are illegitimate to the court itself is illegitimate. Um, I think that's predictable and understandable. And it's disturbing because, you know, the court is not, these rulings are not illegitimate. They are, you know, completely defensible, even if I don't fully agree with them or, or even, you know, like the particular majority right now. Um, It's worrisome to say the least, you know, that people in power who know better and are just pissed because of partisan concerns are saying that this institution is, is illegitimate. But we saw that from the right for decades when Absolutely. the court was more liberal or perceived to be more liberal. Yeah. And every the, every know, time it supports yeah. free speech, you know, right. it's or gay marriage or whatever. It's like, we are all old enough on this podcast to remember thankful. when a big uh, complaint from Republicans was that the court was legislating from the bench and that that was uh, and that that was fundamentally against uh, like a. Uh, against the court's purpose, right? That the court should not be doing that. And in some ways, that's why we ended up with John Roberts saying that he was like an umpire, right? Calling balls and strikes because that the idea was, oh, I'm not going to legislate from the bench. I'm just going to rule on the merits of the of the law. That's why we need robot umpires in the Supreme Court, Nick. I think you can agree with no, me. No, I mean, that shifting strike zone is a real problem. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you think the mound is? He, he's built the mound up, the pitching mound for the Supreme Court. I mean, they're just like in Bob Gibson territory. Expand right? the Supreme Court, but the next two justices both have to be yeah. instances of chat GPT. Well, we need one who's left-handed and is a designated hitter. Let's go with the baseball metaphor. Um, if we can the, just uh, get I mean, we do have nine justices, Matt. Assign them positions. More Shohei Otani's, uh, less... Uh, Less everything else. Uh, let's. Who's the Roy Campanella of the Supreme Court? Um, Come on, let's hijack this into uh, you know baseball and. Scotus. I love how you uh, say "let's" as oh. if it hasn't as already. As happened. if we are not elbow deep who's in the this Jerry, already. Who's the race at decking <laughs> of the Supreme Court? Matt the Bob, <laughs> the Bob Coluccio, uh, Catherine. <laughs> sorry for that. Yes. But Please. you should really do a Google yeah. image search on Bob Coluccio right now no, instead of listening I'm to me because it's fantastic. Because I don't care. Yes, you do. Um, let's go quickly because it's been sort of inv- evoked uh, talking about gay marriage and whatnot to 303 Creative LLC versus Alenis, um, which is the gay wedding website design case. Stop it. Gab. In which the majority opinion by Neil Gorsuch uh, ruled on First Amendment grounds that the government cannot compel a designer in Colorado. Of course, it has to be in Colorado. It's the only state that has contested gay marriage 
business arrangements uh, to produce speech she does not believe in. The case has been lumped in the progressive imagination to the affirmative action case, largely because it's seen as legitimizing or at least shrugging at negative outcomes for disfavored minorities. Uh, Catherine, this one is uh, uh, pretty narrowly tailored, affecting only those whose services involve expressive activity. Uh, with Gorsuch writing and concluding that tolerance, not coercion, is our nation's answer to uh, various problems of discrimination or discriminatory activity. Uh, can you just tell something nice to your friends, Catherine, who are sad about how uh, Republicans are making the world um, uh, safe for mean, discriminatory white people uh, and anti-gay people? Uh, or maybe you don't feel that. Um. Can I tell something nice to my friends yeah. who are sad? Yeah. I, These sure. questions, Matt, are flabbier than your No, I like it. I like it. Because I, I was going to give like a pat thing, but I'm not going to do that now because Matt asked me a nice question. Um, I The thing I guess I can say that is something that makes me happy and that will also make them happy is that this case was not decided on religious liberty grounds. Um, Reasons own Stephanie Slade uh, explained this in her write-up of the case that, in fact, it was decided on free expression grounds. And so this is not uh, a case of, oh, if you just say your God wants you to hate the gays, then you have like special rights that Neil Gorsuch has gone out of his way to create for you. That's not what happened here. Um, instead, it's, you know, I think quite understandably a defense of of art and of artists. And just because you don't happen to be you know, someone with a gallery show or somebody who, you know, works on their own terms on their own time and instead are an artist for hire, it doesn't mean that you have any fewer rights to expression or that you are any less an artiste. And this, these websites of this, I'd have to say, I went and looked, they're not that good. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Does not matter. And the Supreme Court got that right. Uh, I just, I want to see the masterpiece cake celebrating this rule. Yeah. Uh, they made a cake with a picture you know, of like, the website on it, which is then like doubly complicated. That's, yeah. yeah. No. I actually, I want to see the uh, the pro Ron DeSantis uh, super pack <laughs> video celebrating this. Yeah. The, uh, uh, where he's top gov maverick. <laughs> uh, if you have a giant penis shaped. Cake. If you haven't seen it, uh, uh, there was a, a Ron DeSantis uh, super PAC video uh, accusing oh, Donald yeah. Trump of being too pro gay pride month. Uh, really pro trans, uh, pro trans. Yeah, uh, and yeah. uh, I'm generally not a fan of uh, the transportation secretary, the former mayor, Pete Buttigieg. But he had a pretty good line on uh, the weekend chat shows saying, like, that's just a, a weird thing to show a video uh, about how, uh, like, super anti pride you are by showing a bunch of like oiled up uh, bodybuilders with their shirts off. But, you know, whatever you do, you Ron, Ron there's, just, a, there's a kind of horseshoe theory there, too. You know? Yeah, that, that's uh, that's also true. But uh, yeah, so uh, that's not necessarily anything to do about the Supreme Court, but uh, to do with how stupid uh, uh, politics are in America right now. All right, let's go to um, uh, unless anyone has anything more to say about uh, the 303 uh, case, um, I'll go instead to a listener uh, email here. And I warned the contestants on this uh, program earlier that my moderation was going to be subpar today. So I just want to say that I deliver on my promises. Um, You're great at managing expectations. <laughs> it's really important. We're going to get to our listener email of the week here in a moment. 
But first, a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Friends, sometimes life presents you with a fork in the road. Despite what Yogi Berra promised, you can't just take it. (laughs) You need to find the right path out of a dark situation. Think of therapy as a flashlight on your map or even the map itself. It helps you see better so that you can navigate your way through difficult choices and into a better tomorrow. BetterHelp Online Therapy is an easy-to-use, super-flexible, entirely online therapy service that has helped many listeners of this very podcast. All you have to do is fill out a quick questionnaire, get matched with a therapist, and if you don't like the first one, just swap them out for a second. Then start getting better vision on your path forward. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash roundtable right away to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash roundtable. Do it today. You'll be glad you did. Okay, reminder to email your pithy queries to roundtable at reason.com. That wasn't a lisp. This one comes from Jim Geese. Geis? Gotta give me pronunciation, people, with G-I-S-E names. Who writes? Team, enjoy the podcast magazine. Thanks for being an oasis of normalcy. Is that really what we are? <laughs> I'm so sorry to this letter writer if this is the service we're providing him. Particularly enjoyed the recent pod in which you speculated how this path of fiscal irresponsibility might end. So the question being, do you think that Congress would deliberate on uh, budget issues and make tough choices code for making old rich people pay for their own retirement nick he says not me uh if they weren't preoccupied with being reelected. if yes do you think congressional term limits make sense if yes what are your thoughts on a convention of states to accomplish same given that congress is unlikely to impose term limits on itself catherine talk about the 1990s 1990s called, brought your term limits back. Yeah. What do you say about term limits and constitutional conventions, Miss Mangu? Wow, that's what we're doing with my name now? Mm. Okay. Why not? Um, I uh, actually, spe- talking of the 1990s, but not quite, um, on this day, 23 years ago, when I was a Reason uh, intern, I wow. went with Mike Lynch up to the Hill to interview everybody who was term limited because they had taken that pledge in the 90s and just to see how they were feeling about leaving town. The piece that resulted was called Exit Interviews because that's how we did headlines back Mm. in those days. And so bad. It was was an instructive conversation, but mostly it was instructive because half these people (laughs) came back. Half these people did not, in fact, leave town, right? So they did. They were technically term limited, but they took a little break and then ran for another office or just generally um, did not sort of return to the life of the philosopher farmer or whatever it was that we are supposed to do after we finish. So like Harvard with affirmative action, they obeyed the letter of the law, but maybe not the spirit. Yes. They found Uh, workarounds is what you're saying. Workarounds is what I'm saying. Now, some of them did leave. For instance, one of my personal faves, Helen Chenoweth Haig, who literally did go back to cooking for ranch hands after this was done. But because of a sex scandal, that well, part. She was term limited, though. She was. She, she had I already pledged. If, yeah, if I may, uh, Mike Lynch <laughs> said that uh, after the sex scandal broke, that she put the hoe back in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> 
That, my friends, my mentor, my first mentor at Reason, that man. He's now an investment advisor and insurance salesman. Also doing the Lord's work. Yeah. Anyway, all of this is by way of saying, I think, you know, I see the appeal of term limits, but I also see that the type of person who wants to become a politician at the national level is almost certainly going to keep being that same kind of crazy and find their way back into the halls of power, thus minimizing the theoretical upside of limited terms. Um, didn't we uh, interview uh, Jeff Flake about term limits and, and yeah. Uh, oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, like uh, I think in his case he sort of uh, uh, he he broke his vow. Nick, am I remembering this cor- yeah. correct? I, he might even have say I lied. Yeah, he's like I lied. Yeah. Like uh, he was doing a Schwarzeneggerian kind of quip about it. Also, my boy we'll Mark Sanford up. in this lineup, yeah. as well as uh, Tom uh, uh, Coburn. Help Coburn. You know who was who was like they they are crazy people. The other congressional gynecologist or whatever. Yeah, no, it's yeah. good stuff. He, you gotta you gotta leave, and then he came back as a as a senator who did good work. Um, I Matt, you'll recall that term limits was so hot that the Stone Roses did a concept album about to- term limits back in the nineties. Second coming, but. Yeah, it. Um, the, I think like while they were on tour with like, Oasis or something. Absolutely, yeah. Drinking Snapple, you know, it was it was all nineties all the we're time. and James, uh, uh, no. The um, uh, the term limits. Look to California with a state legislature that has term limits, and I think you find not only do people figure out ways to kind of mutate and come back to different offices, it doesn't it doesn't cut the size, scope, and spending of government. And, you know, you think it might because, you know, I'm only here for six years, so I'm, I'm going to do what needs to be done. As often as not, uh, it's I'm going to be here for six years. I might as well spend as much money and give people what they want because I'm not going to be around for the bill. I don't th- so empirically. I think it's a it's a failed project. Uh, Peter, I'm going to forward to you by way of laundering my own internal dissonance about the question, which is to say, um, I kind of agree with, with Catherine and Nick, um, but don't we like? I mean, in the, like the fatalism of term limits too. Um, like it's saying that voters somehow don't have the power to unseat Diane Feinstein or whoever who's been around for five thousand years. Um, but we kind of like term limits when it comes to presidents. So where do you land? So I think the the reader I'm I'm very slightly more positive on the, about this than I think Catherine and Nick are but only very slightly. Please yeah. Because I basically gaps. think that the effect that you would see would be small, right? It would be a very marginal effect. But a marginal effect is not no effect. And sometimes you do something that is that seems like a big change, even though it's actually only going to have a little tiny effect on on the actual outcomes. And you do it because that's what you can do. And in this case, the problem is you can't do it. I would add just one more sort of uh, on the negative side on, on reasons why it wouldn't work as well as you want it to is that one problem with term limits is that relative on a relative basis, they transfer power from elected officials to career staffers because elected officials are there only for a short amount of time and they have less incentive to kind of learn the machinations of the bureaucracy, whereas the bureaucrats and the staffers and the people who are there for life, they end up with relatively more power. And that is going to undo this effect uh, somewhat. So I think I think, you know, I'm not necessarily against this line of thinking. I might be kind of in practice against expending a ton of energy on this idea because I think it, at best you're just going to not get a very large effect out of this, even even if it works uh, as well as you could hope for. 
Um, all right, let's go to uh, our third. If I please. may, Matt, just to extend this, uh, I'm looking at a chart, and it's something like 35% of the Senate is over 80, or over 70, excuse me, rather. Uh, and uh, that's too old. Wait a second. You know, Wait, Catherine, we, can we throw a flag? I know you don't understand what that means. Uh, didn't Nick Gillespie on this podcast 2.7 months ago uh, decry ageism in our approach to politics? Catherine, didn't, don't, don't you remember that? I do, but maybe he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm too old to remember. All that, all that dimension. Know? Mic- I'm an old man. I'm confused. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, you know, it's like, come on. No, but I think we should start calling them. They're free to run. It's like, you know, it's 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 like all the Supreme Court cases. They're free to run. There's no laws against them, but we should deride them uh, for being so old. And you mentioned uh, Diane Feinstein. It's like, I mean, Cthulhu was her mentor. I mean, these are the ancient ones, Matt. We need to start delegitimating. Cthulhu really was Diane Feinstein's people. Mike Lynch. That's yeah. That's yeah. the yeah. takeaway. I mean, we just need to start delegitimating people who are so old they have no idea where they are. This is this is not. I'm so mad that you're going to make me defend the gerontocracy, Nick. But like, this is yeah. not the way. Like, we should vote out people who How are you get rid of bad them? at their jobs. And I think Diane Feinstein pretty clearly falls in this category at this point. Um, but you know, we term limits, unfortunately are not going to do it. I think, you know, this is the business of our gerrymanderers and our redistrictors. If the, if the districts weren't so safe, then we would have less tolerance for people who are simply incompetent. And that is the problem. Not necessarily that they are old. In his house at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Joe Biden waits dreaming. Is that where we're? (laughs) Pretty close. Pretty close. Wow. I'm dreaming of the one hour mark of this podcast. <laughs> God, it's it's going so, so slow. Away. It is going so slow. Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about Yogi Berra. Uh, I don't know why you invoked Yogi Berra in a uh, mental health. Guys, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I have to interrupt. There's a baseball abstract just sitting on the table in here. Like oh, Bill so James. Good. Is it the hardcover? Did, somebody, the hardcover? did you pay someone yeah. to put this in here, Matt? I, no. I did not. And... Uh, I think oh. that's from my Thomas library. Soul that was must underneath. Have it over. Thomas Soul was yeah. underneath. So I'm going to put it on the right order. I prefer the I, pre- I prefer the original baseball abstract uh, because the the newer one just says more stuff. Um, we don't need more stuff. Matt. That's that is actually foreshadowing for my cultural recommendation at the end of the podcast. You'll be really happy to know, Catherine. So you, you plan on plan on your nap. <laughs> I hope it's that Heine Manouche <laughs> biopic that finally, we've been so excited about. Finally, Kevin Costner plays yeah. him at last. Uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's go to uh, door number three of our SCOTUS <laughs> roundup here, which is Biden versus Nebraska. This just reminds me that uh, one of my favorite uh, 1980s slogans was U.S. out of Nebraska, and I still hold on to that yeah. uh, to, to this day. Um, <laughs> Biden versus Nebraska, this is the uh, ruling uh, against the executive branch being able to just magically use a, a post-9-11 <laughs> act <laughs> to wave against wave away uh, student loan debt. Uh, the uh, uh, Biden administration immediately, uh, the president, um, POTUS, uh, doesn't like SCOTUS. Um, and uh, announced new plans to uh, come up with uh, a Higher Education Act of 1965 justification for waiving student loans. 
Uh, we've talked about the ideas, uh, generally speaking, of the uh, of student loan uh, uh, waving away, uh, and certainly also the uh, education um, uh, or using the executive branch authority to do this. Uh, Catherine, uh, what is your favorite president? Uh, what do you think about your favorite president's action on Friday to come up with new ways to come work around uh, student loans? Can I read you a Biden quote that yeah. I hate? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So on Friday, he said that uh, Republican elected officials and special interests stepped in to literally snatch from the hands of millions of Americans thousands of dollars in student loan debt that was about to change their lives. The The number of wrong things, it's like, it's wild. Like, it was the Supreme, the Supreme Court did it. They're not either elected officials or special interests. They're a legitimate branch of government. Not appointed uh, by Republican legislators either. They're appointed by uh, yeah. presidents. They they sure are. Um, they uh, We will leave aside, as Eric Baim urges us to do in this morning's uh, roundup, uh, the misuse of the word literally. And then we still have the problem, which is that all the court did was say Congress got to do it. That's it. They just said, like, this has to be the business of Congress because the president doesn't have this power. And that is just clearly, obviously, on its face true. Um, as you say, that didn't really stop Biden from still salvaging as many pieces of this as he could, uh, including uh, Suderman and I this morning were like, so wait, when they say people have to start repaying these in the fall, they really there are no consequences still for another year after that. If you don't repay. So it's not actually really a repayment deadline starting back up again. So it's like when somebody says your deadline is at 10 a.m. on Tuesday morning. But if you don't turn it in till the next Tuesday at 10 a.m., there's we were not going to do anything. And that's fine. So what's your deadline? It's the following Tuesday. And guess what? When that following Tuesday rolls around, in this case, October of 2024, do you think there's going to be another delay? Like, do you think it's plausible that maybe something will be happening? Like, I don't know. There's the most important of our election of our lifetime is coming up very soon after that. You know, democracy is in. I kind of like the idea of every single person with student loan debt getting hit with a bill like the day before the election. I mean, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, Nick, do you see this as, as uh, like. Uh, you uh, like that idea? Just. Pure chaos engine at this point. Yeah, like, chaos I'm just engine. looking for the. Uh, is this is this a, a a case of kind of we don't really have a, a a new deal. We don't have a Bernie Sanders presidency, but we do have a Bernie Sanders influence on the Democratic Party, and this is one of the the primary examples of it. Is this a kind of uh, weirdly reminiscent, let's say, of when the Supreme Court kind of swatted down some FDR's New Deal stuff like these, these, these wish casts on the progressive economic left saying we can just do all of these huge things. Um, they can't unless they pass legislation they're discovering. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Catherine uh, had it right, you know, when she talked about how this, this doesn't kill student loan forgiveness, it kills student loan forgiveness that isn't passed by the part of government that can do that legally. So in that sense, I think this is great for two reasons. One is the procedural one where it says, you know, the Supreme Court takes seriously the fucking plan for government of the United States. That's always a good thing, that it's trimming effectively the administrative state. And then the second thing is the specific outcome here is a good one. It is wrong to unilaterally forgive people's debt that they took. I am a big fan of student loans and of student loan debt. That's how I, I 
uh, you know, finance my education, but it shouldn't be free. Like the people who benefit from student loans should pay them because, you know, it's like my parents who didn't pay for my college education, you know, they shouldn't have to pay for my student loans either if, if they were to be forgiven. And I want to point out that one thing that is great about this, and we've all, I think everybody on this podcast, as well as Reason, and I'm sure we'll put a bunch of these pieces in the notes, have talked a lot about student loan forgiveness and why it doesn't actually help the people. Supposedly it does. But the New York Post had a great story on a former New York State Senator, Alessandra Biagi, who got mocked on Twitter for talking about how she went to Fordham Law and had $180,000 in student debt in 2012. Now she owes $206,000, but somehow bought a house that's worth more than a million dollars. Like, if you are going to med school or law school, just shut the fuck up about student loans. Like, we don't care. You know, and it's a dumb decision if you get to a point where you can't pay them off. But please do not confuse that with anything that matters to anybody else on the planet. You know, you made dumb decisions and you're still doing really well. So I'll leave it. There. Peter um, Gabs is out uh, on student loans. <laughs> not, stop trying to make Gabs a thing. Stop trying to make yeah. Gabs happen. Uh, Peter, um, uh, are you have you already set your uh, your your timer on how soon we get to see uh, President uh, Biden brag about all the money he saved from the deficit <laughs> as a result, basically, of this not happening anymore. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely going to happen because, of course, when you when Biden did this last year, that then added as an accounting mechanism that added a lot to the deficit because this was going to cost a lot of money. And now that he's not going to do it or at least not going to do uh, student loan forgiveness this exact way. He's maybe going to do it, but find some other workaround kind of like Harvard and like the uh, the the legislators who got uh, term limited out and like everybody who just keeps doing the thing that they want to do, even when they're told not to do it. Um, now, because he's not going to do it in the way that he announced he was going to do it last year, that will have a technical effect of reducing the deficit. And probably Biden will say, well, you know, I, I've been I've been the president in charge of the biggest deficit reduction in history. It's it's going to be just perfect and delightful. What what really strikes me about all all of these cases that we've talked about today is just that they revolve around core constitutional principles in which the Supreme Court has had to be like you can't you can't do that cuz the constitution really plainly says you can't do that, right? Congress has the power of the purse, not the president. That's a pretty basic constitutional principle. You can't discriminate against individuals based on their race. That is in the Constitution. And in particular, if you read uh, Clarence Thomas's concurrence, he makes a like a, an argument that this has been built into our Constitution, like, you know, uh, going back to at least the 1800s. Right. And that this is this is a core principle that you just can't violate. And then, you know, with, with the with the cakes and the websites. Right. It's uh, governments can't compel expression or speech. You can't do that. This is that's the First Amendment. Right. And you just can't do that. And it is it, it is on the one hand heartening that these cases have come down in ways that we agree with and that we think that these decisions are you know basically sound in most cases. But it is also a little bit depressing that these big that these big cases are really about fundamental constitutional questions in which in which in which organizations, institutions in which the president just decided, eh, you know what, we're going to ignore that the whole constitution thing. And it's really it's it's a, a little bit of a depressing state of affairs that we had to get here in the first place. 
If I may, I think it's also important this for libertarians to talk about like th- these are these are rulings that restrict government in profound ways uh, and the ability of government to force people to do certain types of things or to or to pay for certain types of things. And I think it's from a libertarian perspective, it's it's really important to talk about the alternative to that, because people on the right and the left increasingly think that the government is the source of all that is good or bad in the world. And that this gives an opening for what what do college admissions look like when they are not constrained by you know racial preferences? Uh, what does what does the workplace look like when people are left to say, OK, I want to serve this type of customer or not? Uh, what does college like? You know, reason has advanced ways to reduce the cost of college so that it becomes more available to more people without breaking the bank and things like that. And I, I think that's really, you know, the shift that we need to make fundamentally is away from government being the source of all that is good and all that is bad in life. And that when you let people when you give them more autonomy and more freedom, they just create a better world with more opportunities and more options and ultimately more peaceful uh, kind of relations among all types of people. And it may, may uh, open the door towards considering more, uh, uh, considering it like finding ways of help, whether it's private or governmental um, on and focusing that towards people who come from um, actually underprivileged backgrounds, people who are the first in their family to uh, attempt to go to college, people who have immigrated recently from poor countries and are trying hard to to uh, to to work uh, themselves up. Um, it, we focus way too many things on uh, kind of a universalist approach in which very privileged people, including some people who are bemoaning uh, these uh, cases, Soledad O'Brien comes to, to mind, not just like having a successful career that she's had, but she comes from a pretty uh, a wealthy family herself um, and uh, and just like howling with outrage about these decisions um, instead of focusing programs where um, she or, or anyone else who comes from privileged backgrounds can uh, benefit from them, uh, focusing on people who are, are poor. <laughs> you know, imagine that we're trying to help people who are poor um, as opposed to people who Matt, fall into categories. Yes. Were you, are you making a case for the Welch family though, because your wife is an immigrant and you uh, have not attended college or you didn't graduate. I attended college, three so you, different colleges, trying, yeah. Nick. You attended you're more trying college to than create, all of us. No, but you're trying to create a, a special carve out so that your kids get a special uh, free ride. Somewhere. Absolutely not. I will take advantage of the 529 uh, loophole in the tax code or creation of the tax code uh, maximally. Um, and while, uh, you know, uh, secretly hoping that my kids don't go to school so I can take that money and buy a yeah, mega yacht. Yeah, if you could figure out a way now to unfreeze the 529 stuff that's left over where it doesn't get taxed at your highest individual rate, please DM yeah. me, Matt, or anybody listening to this because I got a pile of money that uh, is left over and I really want to take it out without paying, you know, effectively 50%. Uh, May I recommend I, the advice of one Mike, Mike Lynch, Lynch, now a financial okay. advisor, previously interviewer. Yeah, I of know. The term is he limited. like in Turks and Caicos now in some kind of fortress? Uh, Isn't you know, that where we all want to be? I Yeah, I just want the key code to get just in. Just tunneling uh, and blockchain. That's it. <laughs> That's all we need. All right, let's go to our uh, end of podcast, merciful end of podcast, uh, cultural consumption. Uh, Peter, why don't you lead us? What did you consume in the cultural arena over the past one week? 
I watched the show Silo on Apple TV+, Plus, which just concluded a really great first season this last weekend. It's based on the novel Wool by Hugh Howie, which was somewhat famously uh, a huge self-publishing success in the early days of um, self-publishing uh, through Amazon. It's a science fiction story about a society of 10,000 people who are trapped in a silo, uh, presumably underground. But they don't really know how they got there, and they don't know why they are there trapped in this silo. They do, however, have a sort of a constitution uh, called the Pact, the core tenets of which are that they cannot, under any circumstances, go outside, or that they, if they do, they are, they are banished to the outside, presumed banished to their death. And they cannot innovate. They can't invent new technologies. Uh, they also can't ask certain questions about the sort of the system itself and about the silo. And so it's really smartly paced and written um, and just nicely plotted. Like it's a, it's a very satisfying show, uh, especially when you know that the story is completely done and all of the mysteries and the like, questions that it raises, they actually do get answered and someone has thought about this stuff already. It's also kind of subversive in that it is a story about top-down government control that is meant to squelch curiosity curiosity, um, squelch invention, uh, right, to stop exploration or trade, even family formation. It's about how that sort of government control, first of all, is bad and demoralizing, and second of all, inevitably fails because people don't respond well to it and somehow or another find ways to, to, to do what they want and to express themselves and to explore the world around them, um, even if there are big, uh, powerful systems trying to stop them from doing so. So that's Silo on Apple TV+. Plus. Strongly recommended if you like uh, uh, thrillers, science fiction, uh, smartly plotted or written television shows. Nice. Uh, Nick, what did you consume? Uh, I went to uh, a week-long uh, conference uh, sponsored by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science in Denver. Uh, it was Psychedelic Science 2023. About 10,000 people were there to uh, do workshops as well as hear what was cutting edge in terms of psychedelic uh, approaches to uh, things like therapy, research, uh, you know, kind of life-changing drugs and therapies. Uh, it was a fantastic event that in many ways kind of ushers in a move among the psychedelic movement from underground to above ground. Um, and it's going to be really fascinating to see how this plays out over the coming years. Uh, two companies uh, or two organizations are very close to getting FDA approval, one for psilocybin uh, assisted therapy, one for MDMA assisted therapy, that's MAPS. Uh, it's really something to watch the way that psychedelics are going from underground into the mainstream uh, in a big way across a lot of different disciplines, including cultural ones. And to that point, I just want to also note in Denver, I went to Meow Wolf, which has three installations that are absolutely mind blowing. The one in Denver is called Convergence Station, and it is this thing that you wander through. It's like a Chuck E. Cheese for adults who are tripping. Uh, although you don't trip when you're there. They have a very Isn't Chuck strong... E. Cheese like a Chuck E. Cheese for adults who are tripping? No. That is no, my experience, uh, yes. Peter, Peter, if you had been uh, to a kid's party at Chuck E. Cheese, you would know that you end up drinking beer and pizza and I'm want, hoping that someday there'll be something like Meow Wolf's Convergence Station. Uh, it is a phenomenal, immersive uh, experience that you wander around. There's a loose plot line, but it's just dazzling. And I think... It is the uh, at the foreground of a, of a broad type of art that is all about immersion and getting away from screens or even looking at things on walls. So uh, Psychedelic Science 2023, Meow Wolf's Convergence Station in Denver. 
this is the future and it's going to be pretty wild and pretty wonderful. Catherine, what did you concern? I went to a museum that was the past yeah. and it was only okay. Uh, I went to the spy museum and that is because uh, before my daughter went off to sleepaway camp, we let her choose what we would do for the day. And she said, I want to go to the spy museum, which uh, I've been resisting because they you have to pay dollars to go to a, a museum in D.C., which is redonkulous. So anyway, I gave in. We went to the spy museum and it was fine. It was fine. But. You know, it definitely had a little bit of like valorization of some morally dubious state activities against private citizens. Um, I think that the most positive interpretation you can give, it's a very it's you do get what you pay for. Right. So you, you're assigned a spy identity and you go through the whole museum and you it's very interactive. There did not seem to be one physical object in this museum of any like value or interest, really, like that it couldn't have just been like a like a in a YouTube video or something like there was a lot of debris. But um, I think the best case for this museum is that it does teach everyone, including the children who you schlep along through these exhibits, to be aware of how much they can be watched. So I'm going to I'm going to give it like a B minus for training children in counterespionage. The spy museum. It so, was okay. So you got to be a spy. You get to be a spy. And do spy stuff. Right. But the spy stuff is like, here's a screen. You have a, a drive you want to drop. Like, where where in this streetscape would you drop the drive? Not like arrange a coup in a Middle Eastern country? There's almost no coup arranging. <laughs> yeah. So that's there's, disappointing. Uh, there's pretty good advice on how to sneak, uh, you know, put a bunch of people in a lotta to escape East Berlin, right? There's, is I that mean, exhibit still there? Yeah, they got, they got that. They got the Enigma machine thing, which is always very cool. There's a lot of tiny cameras all over the place. You know, we got Matahari's bikini. Like, it wasn't the worst, but it was also like I could have watched a YouTube video about this for 22 minutes and gotten all the value. Did your daughter appreciate it, though? She liked it. You know, it's not all about you. Eh, that's what I hear. Uh, she did like it, and she was happy that we finally got to go. So uh, I enjoyed uh, on uh, Friday, there was the new release, fourth album of a uh, band that I've mentioned here once before, I think, uh, called The Baseball Project. It's an alt Ooh. rock, sort of college rock supergroup uh, uh, featuring a couple of former members of REM, Peter Buck and Mike Mills. Uh, but the main uh, singer songwriters are Scott McHawkey and Steve Wynn. Um, I can't pronounce anything, uh, but uh, they they it, it shouldn't be good um, just because a band organized around writing songs about baseball uh, sounds uh, yeah. bad to me, Terrible. bad to me, not just uh, bad to Catherine Mangue Ward. Take me out. <laughs> uh, but they're uh, strangely good and compelling. Um, I really like them. It sounds sort of like a cross between R.E.M. and Wilco um, and their fourth record, which just dropped called Grand Salami Time. Ah, 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 that hurts. Uh, it's the best sounding one Words of hurt. the four. I've uh, I've listened to it through just once so far. Um, but uh, just uh, this is the first one that was produced by Mitch Easter, Nick Gillespie, wow. um, early yeah, REM producer uh, who's done a lot of great yeah. uh, things over the years, and it really sounds like it. So it sounds really, really great. Um, uh, my favorite song so far is called Screwball. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, you'll be happy to know there's uh, odes to Jim Bouton on there. Uh, another one oh, that's uh, nice, yeah. another one to uh, Shohei Otani called uh, New O in Town. 
little uh, callbacks to yeah. Sadahora O. So it's the second best song that references Sadahora O. Um, I would love to hear do the concept album about Ralph Branca. Uh, they have uh, they have a song. Uh, you're going to listen to this one, uh, Nick, about uh, <laughs> called Disco Demolition. <laughs> Uh, in which they come out against right. they 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 uh they yeah, are yeah. strongly pro disco and pro cross dressing in that pre uh, Ron DeSantis's ad uh, that was the high point of like open homophobia at absolutely uh, another one about the yeah. yips uh, and what I specifically enjoyed because Catherine has a baseball abstract on her desk and wants to die <laughs> um, is that there's a uh, undercurrent of cranky old man anti Bill Jamesism on this record. Oh, yeah, really? if you go wow. in there on the Wikipedia page and like scroll over the hyperlink on their song "Having Fun," it uh, it uh, immediately pops up a picture of um, Bill James and the uh, Sabermetrics thing, and it's their uh, their complaint that we're not just having fun and thinking about fun at games anymore. We're just like overthinking it. Um, so it's great to know that even uh, alt rockers can be crusty olds when it comes to baseball and that's just fine but uh, it's very charming uh and uh like it a lot my could be my favorite of their four records i'm gonna go see them play soon i'm very excited about that uh they're just a strangely affecting band called the baseball project um so do you know people Steve who have Wynn? names that are not like hot dog munchakini no <laughs> just yeah matt is steve Wynn? uh and i know he's not but it would be great if he was related to uh jimmy Wynn, the toy cat uh, sadly no he's the uh he was the head of the dream no. syndicate back in the day um and yeah oh my god yeah, yeah no, this is like you. this wow. is uh this is yeah this. uh the uh, uh scott Ma scott mccahey is from the uh, young fresh fellows and he was also like an adjunct member of rem for a thousand years um uh, they're really good uh and their secret weapon is uh the drummer linda Pittman. who's a lady um, okay, those all the ladies we have time for on this uh, podcast. Thank you for listening. Listen to all of our podcasts at Reason.com podcast. Nick, you've had an exhaustive and very productive recent time here in New York with various events. Uh, are you going to peace out on a vacation or are there other events here in New York that you would like to advertise here at the end of this podcast? Uh, uh, the events are uh, there's a Soho forum towards the end of July and excuse me, other reason events to be determined, uh, go to reason.com slash events to get all of that. And, uh, on Wednesday, the day after, uh, the 4th of July, I look forward to a reason interview with the, uh, wonderful podcaster and politically homeless woman, Bridget Fennessy. Nice. Nice. Um, all right. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to donate us money, there's a way to do that. You go to reason.com slash donate and just open up the checkbook. Okay. We'll see you next Monday. Have a, a, a safe and sane, uh, and an unsafe and insane 4th of July. Goodbye.